So I don't think there's ever been an episode where I've prefaced it with a disclaimer, but um, the following episode is basically going to be something that we wanted to take care of last year, but out of respect for those that participated in the World Dodgeball Association Dodgeball World Cup, I wanted to pocket it for another time, that time being this weekend. Um, with WDBF about to kick off in Cancun in a couple weeks um, and all the great changes that have, that have been happening, I feel like this is a good time to get this out of the way because this was something that me, Mark, and Serge had been wanting to do for a while and it kind of inadvertently started the OG panel, which is awesome. And I'm glad it went that route um, because I feel like this is more more pertinent time-wise. So with that being said, I also want to state that I do apologize for the quality in which Serge um, comes through. Unfortunately, he was not, I'm putting this on you, Serge, he was not able to figure out the whole Zoom feature. So he is talking out of his phone, which is, um, just, just so you guys know, I, I do apologize for that in advance, but um, I hope that the following episode is, is, is listened to in its entirety, and if you have any questions, gripes, challenges, uh, by all means, please let me know, and uh, yeah, without further ado, we'll go ahead and begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dodgeball Podcast. In this episode, we're going to revisit um, the National Dodgeball League, and we're going to do so in what I hope to be is going to be a very uh, constructive and um, professional manner. Um, and joining me and helping me do this is Mark Acom and Serge Ferrari. Guys, thanks for, for hopping on and for, for joining me. You lost me at professional. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, no, 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 Steve, thank you. Yeah, and and that's the thing is so it's a I'm assuming at this point you guys shouldn't have to introduce yourselves, so we're kind of forgo that. Um, I'll do it for you. Obviously, if you don't know Mark and you're listening and you're playing dodgeball, then you you must be brand new. Um, Serge Ferrari, you are the captain of Rise, a team that's been around since uh, what 2006? No, 2007, I think. Yep. Yeah, and um, part Tim's the captain, but. Thanks for the uh, thanks right. for the noble mention there, Steve. I keep forgetting because Tim yeah, has no. Goes through Tim. I'm the I'm the captain on paper because he doesn't know the rules. Yeah. Plus, he had the yeah. social media presence, our pre- presence, and uh... I've seen his rules, yeah. tests, results. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, suffice to say, you you've been around for a long time. I myself, 2004, um, I was at the first EWC, and Mark, when was your first uh, NDL tournament? First EWC. My first was actually 2010. 2010. But you have a unique angle because you, being the, the co-founder of Elite Dodgeball and running it um, all this I'm time. What's that? I'm the boogeyman. Yeah, you're, you're the boogeyman. So we, we each, what I'm, what I'm getting at is we each have like pretty good perspectives to bring to the table. Um, I'm going to do my best to advocate for some of the, the better parts of the NDL, looking at it from start to finish and how much Dodgeball has changed since their, their influence, I guess. But... Um, what I wanted to do with this episode is, is basically take some of the content that we discussed in the OG panel and just make it focused entirely on the NDL. Um, I'm not going to say this is going to be a mini-sode. We're just going to let this conversation take its course. But what I, what I hope is that if the NDL is brought up in the dodgeball community threads or if anybody has the question of what's so bad about the NDL um, or the leadership behind it, um, they could point to this episode 
and and just kind of I don't know I want to say like hear us out, but cover a lot of these same topics that have turned people off to the NDL in hopes that uh, we don't repeat the uh, the past. So I think with that being said, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and dive right in, and I will I'll start with um, what I feel the NDL has done well, um, and this is again looking had at done well. What's that? Had done well. What the NDL had done well. Well. I'll start with with this. So, as as most people may or may not may not may not know, I'm looking at like all the the young kids that that just started playing in the last couple of years. Uh, dodgeball was not really this this established. It was very far from. You had a lot of people that were riding the the movie wave of 2004, and you had fly by night organizations and tournaments pop up, trying to trying to basically emulate the Las Vegas uh, you know quality type tournament you saw in the movie. But um, in 2005, enter the National Dodgeball League with their, and we can get into this if you guys want to, but just kind of shape, shape the image here of the first Dodgeball World Championship and Convention, or DWC, and that was a $25,000 cash prize for a dodgeball tournament. And the marketing was crisp. Um, everything felt like this was a professional organization. If you went onto their website at the time, you would read articles saying, you know, the top three uh, emerging dodgeball entities have merged together to form the National Dodgeball League. And it was basically just a huge hype fest, but it had a national pool. And it, for the first time, in my opinion, um, brought competitive dodgeball to the scene. Um, it would then later on successfully ride the movie wave and continue to do this over and over and over again every year um, near August, September timeframe. And it would basically have the same 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 appeal. You would start seeing teams uh, repeat and, and return and get better and better and better. So, I feel like like again like most organizations and leagues out there trying to ride the movie wave. This actually was a legitimate and, and good attempt at riding the wave, but also doing something with it. And as a result, creating a national slash international brand of what dodgeball could be or should be. So, I'll probably interject when I feel the need to as you guys continue to, to talk about it. But um, before we move on to your your points, Mark, um, I think I heard you yawning. So what were you thinking about uh, those three points that I brought up? My, my yawning? Um, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like credit where credit's due. It was the first thing to really push competitive dodgeball into center stage. Um, you know, when it, I, like I said, I, I came in in 2010, so I got, I, I was there when it peaked. Um, I know you and Serge had been there beforehand, and I know it was uh, rough, rough sledding, if you will. Um, I remember, I mean, even seeing the photos of like the, the concrete floors and whatever. Uh, yeah, it, it, it did everything you said it was. Like it helped put it on the scene. Yeah. And that's why I want to start off with, as you said, giving credit where credit's due, because I don't think we'd be having this conversation if not for the NDL and the efforts that were made uh, back then. Um, so I've been talking for, for a bit though. And, but Serge, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of chime in and, and lay on your, like maybe your top three, like what do they do right? Or just your, your stance on what I put out there. <clears throat> No, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with everything you said. I was there at the first one in 2005. Well, I guess there was one in 2004, but I've never met anyone who attended it. Uh, <clears throat> but it was the one that Prentice apparently won the uh, last dodgeball or standing. 
Oh, is that, is that um, the damn song? Yep. What's that? Okay, because the movie came out June 2004. Yeah. So, I mean, apparently there was like a, a tournament in Minnesota or wherever he's from. Um, and that wasn't like an actual championship, but it was it was like the first first event and it was like a last ball dodgeballer standing and Francis won it. So ever since, like he was like the, you know, the, the first guy to win the belt and, you know, kind of became like a, a, a ritual, like a, every every uh, world championship they had the last dodgeballer standing. I think Jim actually won it one year, which is pretty bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> with his frosted tips. Um, <laughs> yeah, with his frosted tips, exactly. But um, going back to your question, Steve, I, I agree with everything you said. It was, um, you know, starting in 2005, it was, it was quite a spectacular scene, like experience. I mean, you know, I saw the way we kind of got introduced to it was at a bar where we were playing dodgeball at the time. We saw a flyer, as you mentioned, 25K, Vegas. You know, we all looked at each other and said, well, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get over there. You know, we're doing this weekly at a bar, having a blast. Let's go, let's go check out competitive dodgeball. And we went there, and there were teams from, like, all, all across the country. And so it was, it, was, it was pretty amazing to see something like that happen. And, and the competition for its time was super fierce, super competitive. People really wanted to win. They wanted to win the 25K. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so every, every year it just got better, got more organized. There was that one year with the concrete floor that Mark mentioned. I think that was 2006. Yep. 2006. So the first one was at a gym. Like a, yeah, the first one was in a gym, um, I think, in Henderson. You were there, Steve. I remember watching you guys against uh, AAA, Team Evil against AAA. It was, it was quite, the, quite the match. But, um, yeah, the second one was the one with the concrete floor, pretty dangerous. And then ever, and then I think all of the ones after that were out to Tarkanian, 2007, 8, 9, so on. Um, but, yeah, every year it just, you know, in terms of, like, it's, it's, like, growth trajectory, every year it got better. You know, more organized, more competitive, more, you know, more teams would come out. Um, some of the same teams would come out. And, and usually those tended to be, you know, the, the, the more competitive teams. You know, you started to, you know, um, see teams that were, you know, like like there was like name recognition, you know, started to occur, like AAA, Team Evil, like, you know, names like that, you know, that would come on a weekly basis, on, on a yearly basis. Those were the top teams to be. People would like had their eyes on them. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was really the, I mean, in terms of like what I understand dodgeball to be in the U S and like my exposure to it, it was the beginning of competitive dodgeball on a national scale on a, on a national scale. So in that sense, you know, it did, it did a wonderful service uh, to the sport for the sport. Yeah. And it's, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of biting my tongue because I want to dive into it right away, but I think I just might. And this is why we have like our three points. So we can kind of have some kind of outline or structure to this, but um, and I was totally making a jab at you, Mark, with, with you potentially yawning, maybe it was Surge, about trying to hype yeah, well, up the scene, right? So the let's go back to the first uh, DWC in Vegas, right? So, And this is where we're going to probably start going into the negative aspects of the NDL. Cause I think at this point, people know should know just by listening that the NDL is the reason why competitive dodgeball exists today. As you said, Surge, it helped teams find their identity. It helped them refine. It helped determine or pretty much like come up with the concept of strategic dodgeball. I mean, I say this all the time, but if you go watch us play against each other, 2006 surge, we have no idea what the heck we're doing team evil against uh, your stick one nine rise team. And, and you'll see that, you'll see that for a lot of years until I almost want to say until elite started to, to show up. Um, 
But moving back to the first DWC, the first legitimate one, not this Minnesota one. And I'll, I'll try to find the article because it, it might be buried somewhere in the internet of a high school football halftime exhibition where the Wisconsin uh, Ions took on the Minnesota Blur. And then somehow from there, you have the first world championship. You have Ed as the first last dodgeball standing. Whatever. It's good to yeah. build a, 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 a storyline. And this is what I wanted to talk about, like the, the top three leading organizations that fed into the NDL as well when we get into our smoke and mirror mm-hmm. section. But going to the first legitimate DWC in Vegas, um, if you read the mm-hmm. flyer, $25,000 asterisk pending 60 teams show uh, sign up, right? And pay the registration fee of like $300 per player, which is understandable. Um, you cannot... You'd be really hard pressed to put up a cash purse of that much money and guarantee it that much money when you're busting out with something brand new like dodgeball. But what I what I want to kind of allude to is just like a pattern. Um, the second part was it was going to be hosted at Caesar's Palace. So unless you're oh right yeah unless, I that. yeah unless you're reading this with a fine tooth comb or you're, or you're what's that? I was unaware of that one. Oh well, I have a yeah, well so so. So the signups were at Caesar's Palace. Yeah, we 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 walked into Caesar's Palace. We signed up our team at some you know fold out booth like chair like a table that he, that was set up like in you know next to one of the meeting rooms. You know we got like all of, like the uh, welcome packets and then we're I think we're told at, at that at that point that it, it would be held in Henderson. Is that right, Steve or no? I think, and this is again, Asterix and reading everything with the fine tooth comb, because I, I read the crap out of this on dodgeballer.com, you know, the, the bulletin board before Facebook, when MySpace was still kind mm-hmm. of figuring itself out. Uh, it did say games will be conducted at home courts in Henderson, which is 40 minutes south okay. of Caesar's Palace. Depending okay. on okay. Home courts yeah. is close. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, uh, again, brand new. Brand new organization here, trying to promote a sport that is brand new, still figuring itself out, trying to ride the movie wave. I get it. Um, you you kind of yeah, have to yeah, pull exactly. out. Yeah, you, you kind of have to pull out the brand, the branding. And um, one thing that most people may not know about Mr. Prentice is that he runs this company called Rainco, which is a graphic design marketing agency. So to be able to take that and apply that to the NDL is why you have such a polished product. Like even if you were to look at some of their stuff, maybe nowadays you realize some of the stuff is actually still pretty legit looking, but I, I get that. I get the, I get the marketing. Um, you, you know, you're hoping you're going to catch the local news or you're going to hope you're catching big, big sponsors. You, you kind of have to, uh, pretty or doctorate up just a little bit. Right. But what like, I got, the branding was very polished. And then, the visuals on like online and the perspective of it was very polished. Yeah. For, especially for its time. Like you, if you were looking at this for the first time and you're playing dodgeball, you know, on some tennis court somewhere and you have no, nothing else to compare this to, you're like, Holy crap, this is it. Dodgeball's made it like this is going to go somewhere. And you start hearing or reading about like professional tryouts and how, you know, the NDL is looking to expand in these areas and Holy crap, my state's one of them, like yay, Arizona. Like you start to get really, really freaking amped by the time you actually get to the event. And so you can kind of overlook, you know, okay, maybe this is not going to be $25,000. It's going to be like 16,000 based on how many people showed up. Um, but still that's a, that's a lot of money for a dodgeball tournament. And you're like, okay, well this isn't really exactly Caesar's palace, but you know, the, the referee panel discussion clinic, that stuff is, so that's cool. I guess we'll go to home courts. 
maybe we'll just read the finer details next time for next year. You take part in the pro tryouts and you think, man, this is, this is going to take off. This is going to be something. Um, before I get again too ahead of myself, like this was basically the standard from 2005 to I think what we're going to say, Mark to 2010 when they, when they kind of peaked for lack of better words, because at that point you had teams that were coming back year after year you started to recognize faces. You started to recognize, okay, Rise is going to be there for sure. Um, I'll, like Oregon and all these teams are just, I mean, if I thought about it for a while, I can be able to start naming people. But um, that is, again, going to one of the things that I wanted to kind of criticize. But before I do that, uh, Mark, you're kind of talking about like your, your good points, which was making it feel real. Like you were saying how they had some obstacles that you had to like register for, or can you kind of elaborate on that real quick? So I remember, you know, the very first thing they do is, and it was funny as I pulled it up today was the, um, the, the registration form was great. Uh, it, you had a lot of hoops to jump through in order to like be able to get in there. I just remember the most annoying thing was being that you like, you had to fill out all your, your personal information. Uh, you had your teammates and then you had to like check all the boxes of all the divisions. You had to add up how much it was for you. And then you had to fax it in. <laughs> um, oh God. That, faxing. <laughs> yeah. I I, like, about I, that. I, like we had to fax it in. Cause I remember luckily like being at work and being like, Oh yeah, we have a fax machine here. And this was 2010. Uh, oh, geez, yeah. 2011. Um, but, uh, like the even the fill yeah, twenty five we said it was pigeon. What carrier pigeon? Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, <laughs> I just remember like the the forum was like it was really legit. Like it, you felt like you were signing up for a credit card. Uh, and then you know there the other aspects of it like the banquet. Like in twenty ten, the banquet was great. Like there was a bunch of people. There's a group of ten of the inner circle up on the on the stage at a, a special table and you know i remember what was his name james was the photographer going around and there was photos up that night and um i remember at check-in they gave you like a little bag or a little something like i remember i don't know if you remember you had the the poker chips with the with the, with the logo on it and all that stuff like those little things like the drink jeans. What? No, no. Like it was just kind of like a little like a keepsake. Yeah, it was a oh, poker cool. chip keychain. Um, which, funny enough, I just found it in my desk last week. Um, but uh, they just had little things here and there that just kind of like made you feel a little bit special. I, I equate it to like the the UDC tournament and where when you were a player they gave you a lanyard and you had a, a name badge and everything so like it just it it differentiated you as like you're a player you're here and then if you're a spectator you wouldn't have any of this kind of stuff yeah and that's i mean for again for all of our for criticisms shirts and the pros had hats and then their own whistle and all that kind of stuff so it was very clear to like see who the pros were and 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 because they would always wear that shirt and somewhere i've got that shirt or the hat too um that's what i thought they were really good at um all the details like the small details i guess well, like was, aesthetically it was, speaking. it was the 
image and appearance details they were great mm-hmm. at. and I, like yeah. I, they were better than elite at it truthfully well when you're bringing in 300 a player um you might have a little bit more money to, to splurge on stuff like that um trying to jump ahead to to cost but uh, yeah you're also and then you also mentioned about the marketing background steve right with the company yeah i, I know so for elite that, like, I we never spent that money on those things because it was extra. Like it, it just we were you we would lose a ton of money on doing, like I can't imagine like just doing the little poker chip keychains, like doing that and the special whistles and stuff like that. I'm like that's that's a grand out of cash prize. So it was just always like you know we we kept it not bare bones, but as cost efficient as possible. So he's actually going to say bare bones. Like, okay, do we have a, a good venue? Check. Do we have a good tape? Check. Do we have balls? Check. Do we have dodgeball? Check. Like we don't need any of this, you know, fancy flashy stuff. And some people might, you know, want some, some, some swag to take home. But, uh, for the most part the is that the, the flashy stuff was outside of dodgeball. Yep. You showed up to the venue. There was, like one banner and then it was the two by four sandbags terrible nets the nets were on the court uh and it and it it didn't it wasn't a good look yeah so i guess we can we can that's for later but so one uh, the last thing that i would say is that like they were good at hiding that because if you look at the website and you fill out the forms and you go to the check-in at caesar's palace you feel like a vip and this is it and yeah i i, I that's where it ended. i think that was, i think yeah i think you hit the nail right on the head with that because i now that i'm sort of trying to put myself you know, my shoes back, you know, back in those days, I do remember this like feeling of like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm special. Like we're, we're special. We're here in Vegas, you know, to play, you know, at the National Dodgeball Championships. And we're walking into, you know, this banquet that was, you know, dimly lit and, you know, people, you know, in suits. And, you know, there is there was that like special sort of feeling that you would get from those small details that Mark is talking about. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And that's. I feel like that's kind of a, at the time, yeah, at the time it was, it was important because who knew what we're walking into? Like, are we walking into some crappy tournament that, you know, some sports bar is doing, or are we walking into professional dodgeball? And that's what Ed was trying to convey and did a very good job doing that. Um, But at some point you got to stop hiding the stuff that your, your repeat customers or your players are constantly trying to not just criticize you for, but, but I, I would think uh, for the most part, trying to help out with. So I, mm-hmm. I wanted and to, not... go ahead. sorry, go ahead. No, actually, you know, you might be going right to where I was leading. So go for it. Well, I was going to say that's kind of like, I went in the opposite direction when starting elite was like, you know, let's get rid of all the flash and flare and let's put the product on the court. Like all of us, we went to the NDL with the hope of having incredible competition and the greatest games you've ever played. And it wasn't like everything that led up to it was great, 
but the actual <laughs> gameplay was terrible. And so that's why, like, for example, in, in Elite, we focused all about the gameplay, always trying to put as many games as possible, trying to standardize stuff. And that's why, like, you know, the the, the I would, that we handed out like little wristbands at, at nationals, and that's about the extent of what we did on that stuff. Right. I would uh to a certain I I would agree with part of your comment, Mark, but then disagree with the other part. And I'm not sure if this is what you meant by it, but like I totally agree with your point about the big sort of transition from the NBL to the elite was okay. Let's focus on the gameplay which was great. You know, that's, that's what we started to notice as players that we wanted, you know what I mean? We weren't impressed by, as Mark said, you know, the flash and flare and kind of over that, like initially, like in the beginning, it was cool, you know, walking into the banquet, feeling special, walking into the Caesars palace, signing up with, you know, the registration form, talking with people, letting them know that we're going to the world dodgeball championships in Vegas. Like initially that was all cool. We, we loved it. But then eventually we realized that, okay, we want to play the sport. Like, that's what we want to do. We want to get there and play as much as possible. And so that, in, in that sense, I totally agree with Mark that the transition from the NBL to the elite, that was sort of, you know, that was, that was one of the big moves that was made. But in terms of the competition being weak, and I've heard this argument made before, too, on Facebook and social media, often by, you know, influencers and people who have, you know, strong opinions and are listened to, the claim that there was no competition, the competition was, was bogus. I think that's wrong for several reasons. And I, I think on the one hand, it's, it's a historical because for its time, it was the pinnacle of, of competitive dodgeball. Yep. There were, there were a ton of competitive teams and I'm not, I'm not sure if this is what you meant. If, if this was what you were saying, Mark, but um, if you weren't part of the misunderstanding, but just to kind of elaborate on that point, I think that was one of the positives of the NBL before we transition over to the negatives is that, again, for its time and when it was around, except for in the latter years, the later years, it was, you know, the best place to go and play the most competitive dodgeball, well, right? That's totally fair. Uh, and and and, I, and I'll agree with you there. I think, like, I look at competition now and I look at the competition in 2010, like, I don't think the, like the way the style of play happened back in 2010 would get anywhere close to like a top 15, anything. Um, even if you had the same teams, because so much has been learned so much faster throwers or, or, or even the same people throw so much better. And then you, you add all the elements of like the curveball when that really got into the 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 players i guess but i i look at my first year i showed up with an absolute garbage team and like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll admit it like my team was was me um it was uh chad lancaster harrison or randall harrison Dave Benedetto and Eric Auday, and we took second place in the main division. That's not uh, that's not that bad of a team. <laughs> what was it? I mean, hot sauce. We uh, the the real. I always say this: the real match, the finals match between Rampage was was us against uh, mixed play crew Hawaii. That was that was a battle. Yeah. You guys were just. I don't know. Yeah, you, you guys were just. That, you I, mean, I, 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 I agree one hundred percent that a team from. 
the modern era, for lack of a better term, would destroy any team from back then. But, I mean, that kind of goes without saying, right? I yeah. Mean, you see that in professional sports. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you, you pair up Brazil now against, you know, even the World, World Cup winning Brazil from the 1970s, and the current Brazil would beat them, right? I mean, it's just sort of the natural process of evolution and development that is very, um, you know, common to sports, you know, it's just, you just yeah. learn how to do things better and throw harder, you know, move better, learn techniques, all that kind of stuff continues to develop as time passes. But again, for its day, that was where the most competitive dodgeball was played, and that was where you saw the highest level of skill. Um, and so, so in that sense, I feel like, you know, we got to give credit where credit is due. There was no other option that you had that provided a venue where competitive dodgeball was played. And as Steve mentioned, you know, there's where you would go and see the usual suspects, the same teams, AAA, you know, uh, the mixed plate crew, the Hawaiian guys, guys from Australia. You know, these were like top teams that you would look forward to and train all year to play against and to make sure that you would beat Team Evil or another one. So you had, you know, your handful, maybe even like 10, I would, you know, maybe even like 10 teams that were on your radar, similar to the way the elite is now, I mean, to a certain extent, and similar to the way, you know, the international scene is. I mean, you have really only a ha- or maybe two handful of top, top caliber teams. And so, and then the rest is like, you know, just a different tier. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure that much has changed in that sense. I mean, it, for its time, like time and history, it was the best of the best. For our time in history now, the best of the best is the elite. But proportionally speaking, it's it's somewhat similar. I mean, because, you know, you have a handful of top teams that play each other and look forward to playing each other, you know, every year. Maybe a couple of handful of top tier teams and then the rest are a different tier. So in that sense, there is a lot of similarity. And to say that something has qualitatively changed, I think is, is to some extent a historical. You know, I mean, you can't compare one, you know, historical epoch to another as if they were equals. It's just two, 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 total, two totally different moments in time. Yeah, and that's why you're here, Serge, um, to kind of just take what we're saying and, and put in more eloquent fashion. Uh, Dr. Ferrari, thank you. So, I mean... We, we can we can we can, we all agree it seems like they brought the competition um and it was consistent and one of the things that i wanted to kind of touch base on real quick was and this is maybe a rhetorical question i don't know you guys can get stabbed if you want but if you are in apprentice's shoes and you have a premier dodgeball organization uh, organization and and show you're the only show in town because I, well i take that back there was some competition National Dodgeball Association, International Dodgeball Federation. I, I can go on, but but they, they all tried to take a swing and they failed. So pretty much, um, as Ed would say, he's at the head of the dinner table. Now, at what point do you focus on appealing to outsiders such as sponsors and other teams and, and, and growing the league um, in terms of like, you know, going continue with that polished look? What point do you, do you shift your focus from that to your player base, which is growing uh, at this point, again, 2009, 2010, um, more and more unhappy with how things are being run. And now, again, I don't know if that's something you guys want to take a stab at or if you guys can answer, but, and I feel like this is kind of like the turning point because again, you've had a couple of years of, of success. 
But at one point, do you start focusing on on the 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 voices that are getting louder and louder, saying, "You should do this. We want more playing time. We want less of that, more of this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." Any thoughts before we move on? I mean, that's what he didn't do. That was his Achilles heel. Fair. So, I uh, okay. I, I don't remember exactly when it was, Steve, but and this may be wrong, uh, but if I had to take a guess, I would say that you start to hear people complaining about playtime, about you know too many divisions, or or maybe you know the round robin not set up in the right way. You know, just playing you know the same teams that you would normally play you know, throughout the year, like the West Coast teams playing the West Coast teams or, you know, the prices going up, all of those things which point to, you know, a person not, you know, paying attention to what the players have to say, what they want, et cetera. If I had to take a wild stab at it, I, I think it was maybe somewhere around 2009, 2010, when you start to hear these rumblings. Um, and then it just increasingly got worse. You know what I mean? Um, I think 2011, 12, it, you know, it started to become an issue, I think. By 13, you had a bunch of people pissed off, you know, ready to jump ship, looking for another opportunity. Um, I know that's when we heard about the idea of the elite. And in 2014, we were gone. No. And so were a ton of people. No? Was that? I started, 2014, we I were started elite at the end of 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the yeah. West Coast round, right? Yeah, that was the West Coast round. So that was December tenth, twenty eleven. So we had uh, my first year was twenty ten. I had a great time. There was, you know, it is what it is. It was twenty eleven when you know it really kind of hits you when you read that pro contract, and then mm-hmm. when it when it kind of hit for me, and then that's the year where it was just like. I think you had probably had a year because for 20, the transition between 2010 and 2011, that was when they were like, okay, you can't play as your team anymore because you have too many pros. You need to break your team in half. And then uh, it, it created a huge problem in LA. Um, And then the, the pro year was, uh, way off. <laughs> and then that was a big issue. Now that you're now that now that you're mentioning it, Mark. At least for the people that we were hanging around, that was a big issue. I so, totally forgot about that. And so, then 2012, it was my my last year, and that was the just like, okay, you've seen it's it's half the size as it was before. I think 2010 was probably the largest tournament they definitely had. Because I don't, I don't know if you remember, that was the year that they used the back two sides of the gym, and like it was shoulder to shoulder. The courts were all full, and the stands were full. Yeah, 2010 was when they had the most international teams. They had, I want to say, Is that when you won, Steve. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we won at the they top. You won when they they. Split us apart with at the biggest tournament. You, you know what I want to say. Yeah, but you know what? And so, so real quick, because I want to revisit this too, and this is where I'm gonna, where I feel like I'm gonna really hit you in the in the heart, Serge. 
But before I do that, let, let's talk about the pro model real quick. So I want so basically you said, uh, Mark, that you couldn't play with half your team if you were selected as a pro. That that was uh, as of 2005. So we we take part in these pro tryouts. We wear these uh, track runner, you know, pieces of paper to let let the scouts know that we want to be considered for for a pro team for our respective states. And if you got selected, then you're hit with basically a copy of the NFL contract um, saying, you know, you basically what you'd expect a professional legitimate organization to expect out of its players, minus the fact that you're not getting paid. One of the well, requirements, uh, what's that? I was going to say, like the, the provisions I remember the most were that you weren't allowed to play any outside NDL tournament without express permission. Yep. And then if you won any money, the NDL had a right to it. Correct. And then there was the name and likeness that you were giving up. That was the big hang up with me. Um, and then it's just, it, it made it completely constrictive to, to play dodgeball if you followed that contract. Because if you're only going to see one tournament a year and that's really the only one that you don't need permission and you don't have handcuffs on, it was, it was, yeah, it was dumb. It's, it's a tough order. And then, so as a pro, um, you could have no more than, uh, three pros on your amateur team, amateur team, because the, the, the rationale behind that was, let's say you take the entire I don't know. They're still right in front of my screen. The Minnesota, the Minnesota Blur, right? They play in a NADA tournament up up in the Great Lakes area, and they get the crap beaten out of them. That makes the NDL look terrible. Like, holy crap, we just steamrolled these NDL pros. How how big are they? So I can I can understand the rationale I behind think, that. I think it was that. It was two pros. It was two, two for at least in 2010, 2011, 2012. It was so two pro. It reduced, okay, from 25 to, I guess, 2010, 2011, it, it was three. Um, so so there was one argument for that. I, I can totally understand the rationale behind that. You have an image to protect and a brand, and you want to make sure that your athletes aren't embarrassing or, or disparaging that in any way. So that, that was one thing I, I want to argue for the pro uh, uh, setup. But the other one was also, okay, me and Logan and Justin made the pros. So we're going to go home to Tucson and we're going to have to form another team to bring to the NDL. So it also kind of acted as a recruitment tool. So kind of like what happens now on its own organically, we'll send at the time, Hey, we'll send team evil to elite, but we also have a lot of, a lot of players that want to play as well. So boom, we've got like the rock and rollers or we've got the berserkers because they're, they're interested and they're inspired by what Team Evil's doing and they want a piece too. That was part of the rationale behind restricting, you know, a pro team from showing up and playing in the amateur division as well. Um, if you want to go into the, tech, the, the legalities behind it, like you're giving up your name and likeness, uh, giving up or forfeiting any winnings that you might win, like that is a whole nother realm of shady that I don't think we really need to talk about too much because at the end of the day, you're not being paid for it and your only compensation is free entry into the NDL in a, in a tournament on Sunday, which is, um, man, I almost want to avoid the pro day on Sunday all, entirely, but, um, I've, I've kind of, I was able to advocate why I understand the rationale behind the pro model. Um, now where they're not delivered. I mean, that's, that's up for you guys to, to determine Mark. I don't, were you ever part of the pro team? I think, 
Yeah, I was I was on Chicago Vendetta. That's right. Um, I think it was more to the. I was the last year they had tryouts. You were what? I was the last year they had tryouts. Hell, man! Because the following year, they said anybody that wants to try out, go sit on the the bench. And what they had was they had so many people not show up 2011 that they just basically put anybody who wanted to be pro on a team. Yeah. What were you going to say? There was another component. There was another, there was another component to the whole pro situation. So if you were a pro, you weren't allowed to play either co-ed or open. So you had to pick, you had to pick a division to play or like a set of divisions. So so, for example, let's just say, you know, I, I that, that was one reason why Tim and Jim never wanted to go pro. But the other reason was because we would have had to split up our team. But the biggest reason why they never wanted to go pro, despite Ed, you know, you know, coming up to them behind closed doors and, you know, really trying to make a push and, and getting Tommy and Colin to make a push to convince them to turn pro, pro. The biggest reason was because they just wanted to play as much as possible. But once you go pro, you can only play either co-ed or open. Oh, yeah. In 2011, what's that? Because in 2011, so in in, in 2010, I played as many divisions as humanly possible. And then 2011, when you're pro, they're like, you're allowed to pick three and that's it. Hmm. Yeah. Like once once they started Uh, adding divisions, then then they, they determined it like based on like, the number of divisions you were allowed to play, but initially it was co-ed or open, like you pick. So I would always pick open and then, and then not play co-ed. That's why I was never part of the janitors or, or, you know, um, which, which ended up turning it like forming into rise co-ed eventually once the elite formed. But so my theory behind that, Steve, was that it was actually like also a, a brilliant like idea in terms of like setting up the refing system um, not not organically and willingly on behalf of the players, yeah, but forced like, free labor. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like forced like labor, like because if you were a pro, you had to rest the division you weren't playing. You had to, and moreover, if you were a pro, you had to show up one day before the tournament to set up the dodgeball court, and then leave. Or not, you would have to stick around for quote unquote pro day. Which, you know, I always found a, a reason to, to skip it. I think I ended up going to like two pro days out of like the five or six years out of the pro because I knew that at the end of the day, it also entailed tearing everything down and, and, and doing all this work for a guy that I knew was pocketing a lot of money. Yeah. Now, if it wasn't a for-profit, you know, operation, I probably wouldn't have such a big beef, you know, with making my contribution and chipping in and resting and picking up and cleaning and all that stuff. And in fact, I think, you know, just to kind of go off on a little tangent, I think it's, it's, it's a big deal to have that kind of help. Like I told Mark after this most recent nationals, this is unsustainable, man. You can't have three or four or five guys doing all of the work. Oh, sorry, Steve. Um, doing me. all the work. <laughs> and, and, and then you guys are going to burn out. And I'm sorry, dude. Like I don't, like I'm, I'm a 37 year old dude. Like I just played all day. I don't have the energy to stick around and help out and do all this stuff. And I feel like this is unsustainable. Like you need to stop paying people. You need to stop paying the winning teams and you need to hire people to come and do the cleanup and do the setup. And, and, you know, and that's kind of what I told Mark behind closed doors because 
because I, I see that all of those things are super, super important. So I'm not trying to, you know, discredit like how important that stuff is, but it's a different situation with a guy like Krennitz who was making a ton of money, charging a ton of money, and then having the, the quote unquote pros do the labor. So yeah. it's free labor. That, that's, that's my whole theory behind the pro. And like, it's, you know, I don't know if that's exactly the way he designed it or if it just kind of naturally happened that way. And he said, oh, well, well, actually, this is, this is great because I don't have to spend money on, on, you know, on, on, on people picking up trash and setting up courts and breaking them down, et cetera. I could just have the pros do it, but that's what it ended up becoming. Yeah. And then and you, so I was always sick on pro day, Steve. That I was, was always sick on pro day. That was brilliant. I, uh, when, when rampage one, I was like, you know what? I am hungover as crap. I'll go to the, to play the games. And then I'm, I'm done. Like I, this is I already, I already got what I wanted out of dodgeball, but so to Dude, go back, let me add, let me add, let me add one more anecdote, Steve. On pro day, I would get hounded by Tommy and Colin. Oh, gee, they sorry. would call me, blow up my phone, Serge, where are you? You got to be here. And they were, they were, they were like reaching out to me on behalf of like Prentice. Like Prentice is asking where you are. Like I would almost feel like, like I would be nervous about the situation. Like I would be at the at the ride house, like saying, "What should I say, guys? Like should I say I'm like should I say I'm sick? Like what should I say? Do I got a flat?" <laughs> but like. It was like there was a lot of pressure to be there. Like they would reach out to you before the tournament. Serge, are you going to be here the day before? We got a big meeting. The big meeting was to set up the court. Yeah. We, I mean, we would meet and talk about these like grand ideas. But at the end of the day, it was all it was all smoke and, and, and whistles, man. It was all about setting up the courts. And we'd meet for 30 minutes. Hey, guys, this is what we have in plan. You know, we have these big sponsors. We're going to go do these big things. Okay, go ahead and start moving sandbags for the next six hours. Yeah. Oh, and here's some pizza. I mean, appreciated that, but it's, it's like you said, that was the expectation. It, it became a job. And then again, your only compensation was a, and I really don't want to get into it, but a crappily run professional tournament on Sunday that was supposedly filmed. God knows what the footage is. And, um, James, they've got it all. They just, they just didn't have anybody who could edit it and, and, and do it. Cause the last time they put up, matches was 20 2009 2009 and they so going back to, to the pro thing real quick and, and a lot of this money that may have come out of the first dwc to his credit again go back to the to why the professional thing could have worked was ed dumped a crap load of money on professional grade cameras he busted out the whole no, crew never, photos professional grade cameras what's they that were the basic consumer cameras now I'm telling you, they were legitimately like sports uh, looking, like they were massive. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll have to do some research okay. and show you what, but. Uh, 2010, 2011. No, I'm talking 20, uh, 2006, uh, oh. before your time. Okay. So calm down, young man. <laughs> you'll, you'll get your turn. No, and, and but he did. He And the, he tried multiple angles um, and he tried to put on a really good production. And whether or not, you know, he was able to get any bites or interest in somebody picking up that production and airing it. We'll never know. But that was like the, the only time where you saw an actual uh, deliverable from being a professional dodgeball player. Um, anything after that was, as you said, Mark, it was prosumer cameras. Uh, he even borrowed one of my friend's uh, camera, mounted that thing to, to a basketball hoop. And there are hours of footage, seasons upon seasons that are just mm -hmm. sitting out there uh, going nowhere. But um, I also wanted to say, all, after all this was said and done, whether you want to agree with whether or not the pro model was was a good idea in paper, terrible in execution, 
was it's, just, it's, it's a tall order to say, hey, I know you've been playing in Tucson with your buddies, uh, Team Mule, for like years upon years, but uh, you guys can't play anymore. You got to break up and form your own team for this like just completely low yield reward. Um, and I know Rise had a huge issue with that. And to make it worse was um, like you just, well, I kind of want to transition to something else, but um, I'll pause right there. So I want to get off the pro thing, but I, I think we've said all we could. Uh, Mark, you came into it at a, at a unique time, but basically it was just a rehash of things that just were, were working in the sense that it just got, as Serge put it, free volunteers and free referees. Now, you have a really unique perspective in this in that, yes, you just recently started compensating referees, but at the same time, I feel like you get a lot of people wanting to help you out and you just take advantage of that. And you don't really expect it. Um, and I can kind of vouch just from my point of view, setting up this last elite nationals. Like I was there to set up the ball state booth. I saw a lot of people busting their, their behinds working. And I was like, well, I'd be a real, real big dick right now if I, if I didn't help out either. But you, you, you just get people that generally want to do it uh, for the sake of doing it, unless I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, well, for the most part, those are all people who are actually a part of Elite who are setting it up. Right. And they're doing uh, – it's like, – and, and they're getting – you know, they don't, they don't pay to play. A lot of them were being housed in the hotel for free. Um, and then, you know, obviously food. So, you know – their help was a condition of, of, you know, being taken care of that weekend. Right. Which again, I, I know there's people that volunteered just for the sake of it. They'll, they'll do the thing because they, they those just, guys are fantastic. Yeah. And, Whereas I feel Ed got everything he could out of you and then some, and some people, you know, like Tommy and chase, they, they really, they, they put the pressure on people like Serge to, to join the the cult and, and continue to contribute for free when all you want to do is experience dodgeball with your buddies and have a good time. And, uh, at some point you just get really tired of hearing we have something big coming or we're, we're going to make it or you'll, you'll be compensated at some point. Um, just being sold in the same dream year after year after year and having that end up, um, going nowhere. But I kind of wanted to, to kind of go past 2009, um, where I think, um, the NDL made a really big mistake and that was, they took away the, the cash prize. Um, I don't know. And this is all going to maybe go into the hearsay section, but if I recall, um, Serge, I, I don't know if you guys ever got fully paid for your winnings, but at some point the decision was made to just remove all, all cash prize, uh, because <clears throat> the idea sounds good on paper. And that is we want to be the, professional dodgeball organization that provides the best competition. So if people are competing for money, uh, maybe we'll see that um, become more pure if they're playing just for the passion and, and the bragging rights of the sport. So I don't know if you guys remember that. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, Mark, but that was the rationale, at least the explanation that we got for why the cash prize was removed. I never heard that. <laughs> I've never heard that either, Steve. The reason, the reason that I remember the cash prize being taken away was because he was losing so much money. It was, it was the same pitch every year. And the pitch started before even they took away the cash price. So 2008, 2009 were the last years uh, that they paid out. 2010, there was no longer a cash price. Um, I actually think 2009 was, was the year that they stopped paying out. 2008, so we were the last, we were the team that won the last year that they paid out and there was very little and Tim and Jim and 
some of the guys had to hound them for the co-ed winnings. It was just, it was, it was a mess. Um, and it wasn't that much. 2009, he got rid of it. May have been 2010. Regardless, he got rid of it. And I remember it being because, um, you know, they would say, especially on pro day, and especially just, you know, to people that they would confide in, you know, on a one-on-one basis, you know, like me and some other people like Tim and Jim and, and others, Kelly being one of them, you know, um, that, you know, they were just losing a ton of money. Like that was the narrative. Tommy, guys like Tommy and Colin, like really like, you know, pushing that narrative and, on, and, and that's fine. They, they, they may have totally, you know, had, maybe they totally bought into it, you know, but that was the narrative. And I remember just kind of working out the numbers in my head and saying, there's no way, right. There's no way he's losing money because not only did he get rid of the cash prize, at that same exact moment, he started raising the prices. So, so they, they started to steadily increase precisely at the moment that he got rid of the cash price. And so, I don't know. I, I feel like, to me, it was very clear that, that there's no way this guy could have been losing money. You know what I mean? The Tarkanian on the outskirts of Vegas. Well, the Tarkanian. I didn't know. The Tarkanian <laughs> for that amount of time was four grand for the weekend. Four so, grand. I mean, do the numbers. We're talking about $350 per person, six people per team, 35, 40 teams. Yeah, 35 open teams. I mean, we're talking about 80 grand, 80, 70 grand. I don't know. I'm just kind of just throwing a number out there, but I'm well, guessing. Let's, it's let's, let's play with some numbers. So real quick, let's, let's just assume, I think 250 was the going rate for, actually, you know what? I'm on their website right now. I could probably pull an old registration form. It was one six. It was, it was 145 and then 165 later on for your first division. And then it was $35 to $45 for every additional division. Okay, so let's do 145 times 6 times 30. $26,000, right? Okay, so let's let's just, again, keeping this real simple without going, because, you know, some people played, like Chris Bell, every single division they possibly could. Some people spent more than others. Some people got to play for free. But let's just say at 145 times 6 times 30, we're like 26 grand right there. You said the Tarkanian for that amount of time was 4,000, Mark? Um, Actually, it was... It was uh, a little less because on for elite it was forty two hundred, but we did a full third day instead of a half day, um, so he would have probably been paying about thirty eight hundred or or four grand. Okay, let's do four grand. And Steve, I'm not following your I'm not following your numbers. Can you can you tell me your numbers again? Okay, we're not gonna get super into the weeds, but just just kind of real quick. So I think at at a base level, you could play in one of the DWCs post-2009 for $145 a player. So I'm taking that, and I'm multiplying that by 6, which gives me 870. And I'm multiplying that by 30 teams, just baseline. There, there's obviously well, more teams the base, than that. The baseline was, uh, like, I, I remember there was 35 teams in, on the bracket in 2010, and that's just open division. That doesn't constitute foam exactly. or co-ed or the women's division. Right. Even though women's division only had like three teams, it doesn't constitute the uh, last man standing, which was like 10, 15 bucks a person. Doesn't, doesn't include the spectator fee if your family wanted to come and watch. Um, it, it's it's just, again, real simple baseline stuff for one division, as you said. So right now we're at $22,000. Um, how much would insurance cost you, Mark? The, oh, the insurance for that event would be probably about uh, 1200 
So you're you're twenty thousand. Good. I'd be shocked if he had insurance because oh, don't say that. <laughs> they didn't. They probably didn't check your insurance certificates. Well, let, well, let's no, let's no, assume. no, no. Yeah, he had to have insurance because yeah. Tarkanian and Ennis Wesley did require insurance. Because I know I've got the Tarkanian forms. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he had insurance, so he's probably paying anywhere between eight hundred to eighteen hundred dollars of insurance. But I doubt he paid more than twelve hundred. Even if he was paying eighteen hundred bucks, he's at twenty-two thousand dollars for one division for thirty teams. Just for those numbers alone, like as you said, sir, it's like I, if you look at the numbers and like Mark, you've done it. I mean, this is you have probably the most, the best uh, frame of reference here, or you're the best. Uh, I don't say expert on this, but I mean twenty thousand dollars. Where is that money going to? Is that, is that paying back debts from 2005? Is it going to all this high-speed equipment? Can't be because you're borrowing the same camera that my friend brought. Um, are you compensating the pros? Are you Is that going to a cash prize? Like, that's when and it's, you, you can argue, oh, it doesn't, it should never have to be about the money. But if the money is increasing, there is no cash payout, and the quality is going downhill, like, what what is happening with this? And, and so that's when... You started to get a lot of crit, a uh, lot more criticism. Not just you know players trying to do the right thing, like hey, I want to make the NDL better. What can I do? How can I bring this to my my um, to my organization? And you do that, and you're just given with a strict set of rules and obligations that are really hard for anybody to meet. So just real quick, real quick tangent. If you wanted to be part of their affiliate program, you if you're a for-profit organization, you paid 500 bucks. If you're a nonprofit, you paid 200. What you get is basically an affiliate page on the nationaldodgeball.com website and you get some of the branding. Um, what you have to do in return is you have to put at least two teams of the uh, from your local league to the NDL. You have to send them there and you also have to run two sanctioned NDL events. You don't get insurance. That's probably one of the biggest pain points for an outside organization trying to get their league going. You don't get equipment. You don't get really anything at all. Oh, and you also get uh, your tournaments or your events uh, blasted in an email blast because that's effective. So a lot of this stuff just just doesn't add up to where all this is going. But I um, almost lost my train of thought. I was reading your, your note here. Um, I'll explain that. So I, I put in my notes, Rise can't play anymore. Did we do that bad? But yeah, um, it, it's... It, it was just crazy where all, where all this money is, is not going to the players and the quality is just not there. And, um, it's kind of making me a little upset when I think about it now. So I'm going to let you guys talk now. No, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head, Steve. It was the perfect storm. And I think those three ingredients combined to, to really set the stage for its eminent decline. Yeah. I mean, demise. and, 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 you know, you mentioned it, the quality going down, not listening to the players, not listening to the fact that the players wanted more play time, wanted to play different teams, didn't want to play a circus uh, minestrone soup of, of of divisions. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think one year there were like seven different divisions, right? Oh, yeah, it's crazy. There was a there was a million because we used to have open. We had or sorry, eight point five open, eight point five coed. Then there was. Um, Foam open, foam co-ed. There was foam no block. What the? 
What the <laughs> hell is that? Women's <laughs> division, there was no block division. Don't forget that there was Stinger division. About bro, bro, yeah. I I have the foam no block championship title. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, that's well, so yeah. To, to kind of add on to this and, and with with uh, like the failures, the I from my experience, they've the fall of the NDL was their was was their own fault, and I know a lot of people want to pin the blame on me, and I get that, and that's fine. But the hardest thing that they did is they they failed to expand. Like the the whole reason I started Elite was one tournament a year wasn't good enough. That wasn't enough, and so we wanted to play more tournaments and then there was the um you know as we as we spoke about the pro leagues it created problems or the the pro division created problems because all of a sudden you had to break up your friends and now we had to compete against each other and so then it became like a, a mad dash to like oh no he's playing with us oh she's playing with them it became a problem um and so like Ed spent a lot of his time focusing on the pro teams because those were the teams that had pages on the website. Meanwhile, you know, for 364 other days of the year, you played as Rise, not San Diego Crossfire. So the product of San Diego Rise is always going to be better than the pro team because you played with rise all year long. So that's a much more exciting team to watch. Yep. Um, as opposed to like, you know, Vendetta, we won in 2010, but that was me and three guys from Illinois at the time. Like, but, we no but Mark, do you, do you think that was genuine? The, his, his focus on the pros, because I think it goes back to what you said initially. It was, it was him sort of, you know, being able to pay attention to a lot of the superficial detail but not really focusing on what mattered. Well, no. The core. Of, I understand that. I mean, because for him, the, the, the pro day was was lame. It wasn't. It was like what, like four hours of playtime on Sunday. It was just like, it was all. It was almost like scripted. I was gonna like, say, I, I think it's, I think it's lip going, service. But you gotta, you gotta understand. Yeah, exactly, lip service. That that the end game was TV. The end game was a, a final sport, and then the pros would be it. Like that's Probably, what we're yeah. going for a hundred percent because that's the only thing that got filmed. That's the only thing that looked professional because you had to have black shorts. Yeah. You were given a Jersey. You didn't have a choice. You had to wear the Jersey. So everything looked professional. That's yeah. what he was putting his money on was that that is, is what's going to sell. And so he yeah. put so much time focused into that, that, when you played the amateur divisions, like you said, you would play five teams and you just play the same ones over and over and over again for an hour. And then they'd pick seating out of a hat. And that was, you know, your weekend, um, you know, and then to like go on top of that. The hardest thing was, it was them being vindictive. Like 
there, how many people are persona non grata and elite? There's one. And that's for threatening the life of my wife. There's one. But how many people were banished from the NDL? Like, you know, I, I am persona non grata. Eric Day, like uh, Vince was, Glenn was, like uh, 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 even outside of elite, there were there was there was people like that. Think of all the vindictive stories where awesome where you had Team Awesome, you had the guys from Task Force Unicorn and another team go to a tournament in Tennessee and they called and told them that like, hey, those guys are all professional players and you know, they lost their hotel money, their travel money, their everything and wasn't allowed to play. So, I mean, we could talk about the times where I rented venues and I had a system in place that said, okay, to you know, the even the Tarkanian. You know, I told Ennis and I said, hey, if I ever call to cancel my reservation, <laughs> email me here to confirm. And oh, I got emails, someone trying to impersonate me to cancel my event. So before we continue with that, I... I wanted to bring up the Team Awesome thing. There's a lot of hearsay stuff that I wanted to kind of save towards the end because it's it's not really, I don't know if it's founded on actual fact. I've tried to keep this as accurate as possible. Well, but I can tell you that I dealt with, yeah, with the tournament organizer because they called me to confirm their status as pros and, and players in Elite. Yeah, and, so and that's... hearsay on my part. I talked to the source. And then they told me, so the head organizer in Tennessee said, Lisa called us to tell us that these people were pros. Lisa being Lisa Prentice. Yeah. Um, I've heard so that. Let's not, let's not play hearsay. That no, was from that's... The, the third party, the organizer of the tournament. As long as uh, I just wanted to qualify with that, so I mean, and that's why you probably have the most uh, experience with some of this vindictiveness, as you said, because if if you try to do something on your own, uh, man, you they came down on you pretty hard. Like, what are you doing? This violates the contract. Why are you competing against us? This is what you agreed to do. This isn't helping the NDL. Blah blah blah. But um, yeah, I'm glad you you were able to kind of qualify with with some fact. Not not to. I'm not saying I, I don't believe you or Team Awesome or what actually happened. Just for people who have no idea, you know what is going on. If you if you can just kind of do what you just did, so. Um. Um, and then if you want to go back further, so this is what I think was the death of the NDL. So they you know they got on the other they they got on the wrong side of the players when they decided to play judge, jury, and executioner. But what people failed to understand was so the last year I went was 2012. 2013 was the very next year uh and that was udc in vegas the same weekend so all of a sudden you had the teams that had normally attended your team awesome your rise your your doom your all those teams and they had a choice between competing for $50,000 and being on ESPN on UDC or going to the NDL. And what ended up happening is 
they scrambled and if you remember they had done us they did a special where they were like hey we're only going to charge half price we'll even shuttle you from udc to the tarkanian and then i think ultimately they had somewhere between seven and 12 teams total in 2013 and then again the same thing next year it's on the same weekend as udc and they had about Eight players. Trying to so, mark that. They we were there 2013, but Mark's narrative is basically right. But yeah, it was a little bit better than the way you're describing in 2013. There was a little bit more, but you're right. It was at the same time as UDC, and that definitely – Awesome was there 2013, um, but that definitely had an effect on their numbers. There were a lot of teams that did both. Um, but 2014 was the year that they had 10 teams. I think that they made up. Like, oh yeah. 2014, through. 2015. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, those were the, those were like the big, big, like downfall years. We were there 2013, but that was the first year that UDC and, and the NDL, uh, ran the tournaments concurrently. And that year it was still pretty unclear, like, like what was going on, like from everyone's perception, the elite and NDL were were doing something collaboratively. Um, at least that's the way Ed made it seem. And so NDL and were, a, were doing something collaboratively or UDC? Um, so the UDC. UDC. What did I, what'd I yeah. say? What did I you say? Said, you, you said you said NDL and elite, and I was like negative. Well, you know, I was like, well I'm on I'm on, I'm on my second glass of wine. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> my bad for for cro- crossing those wires. Um, no, I meant to say NDL and UDC. Um, at least that was the perception that A. Ed was able to 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 and give to everyone. Ed was the announcer for UDC, and he stayed yeah. at UDC. Meanwhile, the tournament was being run at the Tarkanian at the same time. So yes, I mean, so there was that was a decent, but not like as big as the years before, and that was when we started noticing, okay, this thing is crashing, like nosediving, and, and then next, the year after 2014 was when you had 12 teams. But it was it was it was it was shooting themselves in the foot by making people compete. Now, so there was a time in 2014 when we when we expanded to the east. And what ended up happening was we had put, we had released our dates on Christmas. And then, you know, a month before the event, we had uh, an NDL event pop up in the same city, same date. And we reached out and, you know, said, Hey, like we're us being elite. We're more than happy to like, you know, move it a week ahead or a week after. And from the horse's mouth, no we want people to choose it's one or the other you can't have both there's not enough room for both the problem is is they kept trying to make people choose yep i have always said that we've never said if you want to go play the ndl go play the ndl we're not going to penalize people for it you know we don't penalize people for going to play was it the the wda in new york i don't care go play dodgeball that's all i care about um but they had taken the stance of it's one way or the other and they kept shooting themselves in the foot by putting their events 
on the same time. Like Ed was the announcer for UDC. He could have gotten the truck out of the way for three years. He could have gotten the truck out of the way. He could have done it the week after or two weeks after or change it to the next month. But when you're putting yourself up against something that was UDC, like up until this last year, as the head of elite, I've always been scared of UDC because you could never tell when they were going to, you know, announce their, their schedule. And so it was always like, I hope they don't screw us. Um, and, and, and so the idea that he would put like, as a, as a member of it, as the announcer of it, he knows the dates. Like I can't, can't fathom why he'd want to compete with it when it takes away his, his people. That so the sad part about that making people choose this event versus that one happens even on a local city level, and anytime that happens, like you you just lose. Like people are gonna play dodgeball at the end of the day. Um, it doesn't matter what organization. If if somebody's hosting dodgeball, they're gonna play. Um, and that that turned out to be the case for for elite because it it showed that you were in it for the right reasons you and vince cared about the player you guys put a lot of time and energy to listen to a lot of the gripes that were coming from people and that glenn. are what's that and glenn and glenn yeah they were coming out of the ndl to to produce a better product and you have somebody who is saying no you're going to compete with me and fast forward what 2015 by just exit the scene um I wanted to get into one of the, the, the biggest things, uh, and this was the, the, the comments that we put in the notes that kind of derailed me a little bit, was, um, was Rise being approached, um, and maybe this is where I said I'm probably going hit to hit you where it hurts, Serge, and this is also a, a kind of a point of contention for me in terms of like Rampage winning the championship. But 2010, mm-hmm. Rise was told, you guys can't play anymore. Is that true? Yeah, that was. Yeah, and so yeah. when I say like our championship match was really mixed play crew um, and not hot sauce, that should have been right Rampage versus Rise. That was something that we were preparing for since the start yeah, of the competitive we season. Beat them. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> you guys got there somehow. Well, we so we, we beat half of you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I was gonna say I'm kind of walking my comment back. Like you guys got to the finals, but so stuff like that just just chip after chip after just bad move after bad move i mean what was what was the rationale for saying you know a team that has been dominant since 2007 that is setting the standard for a, a competitive team what professional looks like or what professionalism looks like outside of the sunday pro league what was that like serge just being told that and what, how was that delivered to you guys well i mean he had he had um a reason for it that obviously we didn't buy into, but the reason had to do with like, you know, being disruptive at the, at the banquet before. And I think that was the year that Joe gave his uh, birthday speech. I don't know. It's, it's, there's, there's video of that online somewhere. Oh no. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, my, my impression is that, you know, he, he just didn't want us coming back. Like he, it wasn't good for his business model, especially for the quote unquote, the amateur tournament, which was, you know, the, the world championship that he would throw out the year. It wasn't the pro champ, the tournament. It was the, you know, the big tournament that he made a lot of money from. 
and it wasn't a, it wasn't good for his business model to to have the same team winning over and over. And so he, my theory is that he you know wanted to break us up, and he did. And he told us, you know, you got to split up for a year because his his reason was because we were just being too disruptive the year before. It had to do with like Joe going up and giving a speech and and referring to both of them as Mr. and Mrs. Apprentice, and you know just kind of being funny up on the on the stage and. And, and and I think he also asked like the question when he was doing like his introduction for the tournament. He asked the question, how many how much money do the winners get paid? <laughs> um, and that was the first year that that <laughs> that he cut the money. Um, so just like little things like that, he didn't like, and he just told us, you know what, you you guys were being too disruptive this year, and and uh, we're gonna have to ask you guys to split up. No, so initially he told us. We're going to ask you guys to not come back. We were thinking about asking you guys to not come back to take a year off, but, you know, we're going to be nice and let you guys split up, which doesn't make any sense. Like, cool, cool, cool. okay, if you're, going to punish, <laughs> if you're going to punish us for, you know, for being obnoxious, you know, what does splitting up the team have to do with that? Like, you know what I mean? You would just ask the people to not come back for the year or something. Well, yeah. but, I'll tell you from the organization standpoint, which, which to me is funny, like, you know, I, I've heard from year for years. They're like, "Oh, well, no one's gonna win because no one's ever gonna beat Rise or no one's ever gonna beat Doom." And, and they're like, "It's not even worth it anymore." And it's always like, "No, it's it's the amount of work you put into it. Rise puts more work into it than anybody else did, and then Doom put work into it." And and it's the people who want it the most win the most. And so his teams weren't putting the work in to try and beat you guys. And so people start to complain and say that it's not worth it anymore. Like one of my own players uh, said, I'm quitting dodgeball because nobody's going to beat rise. He went away for a year and then came back and played for rise. <laughs> Who's that? Oh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can't well, read him. I, join him. I, 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 I understand so, so my, his comment. But it's a chicken. I always come from the point of like, hey, if you want to beat them, then you got to put the work in and beat them. His his objective there was to just say, if someone else can win the tournament, everybody's going to think that they have a chance to win and it could have the possibility of growing. Well, yeah. so, so here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. I don't agree I think, with and in, and, in, and in this sense, I'm somewhat contradicting what I had to say earlier. Um I think the environments are totally different. So on the one hand, Mark, with the elite, everyone is on board. Everyone has bought in. You have 100% buy-in in terms of this is the elite. This is the it's most elite. competitive. What's that? It's just elite. <laughs> okay, what, what, can I call it the elite? <laughs> Here's what I'm trying to say. For elite, um, everyone is on the same page, right? You have 100% buy-in. All the players know that this is where you go to compete at the highest level. And so there is no danger, in my opinion, of having a team that is winning on a consistent basis, right? Because that gives you, in a, in a competitive environment, that adds fuel to the fire. That, that encourages the drive. Uh, for players to work hard to to get better, and that's happening. I mean, I don't know about you, but what I saw at last Elite Nationals was was really impressive, especially what was coming out, was what, what was coming from a lot of these young players. 
But the environment for the elite, I mean, for, for, for the NBL was totally different, totally different because it was in its own like different stage of development. I mean, the NBL, yes, it was the most competitive venue for its time, but it still wasn't an environment where players had been cultivating, had been cultivated to that sort of competitive state of mind. Not everyone going to the elite, to the NBL, was thinking about the NBL as, okay, this is like serious competition. I have to train all year and I have to win. I have to be the best. No, he still had a lot of people going because it was just something fun that they did. Oh, and so a, in that environment for people, what's that? It, it, no, there were teams who went to the NDL because it was a bachelor party. Yeah, I, I think. Sure. So, so there was a lot of that. And so my point is to have a team that wins year after year after year is not good to his business model. Not good for a business model that is premised on that environment. Because if you have a bunch of people that are just showing us a party to have fun, and sure, you do have people that are competitive, but the vast majority of your of your client base is just showing up to have fun. And then you have this team that is coming, you know, every year and winning. It's going to discourage people from coming again. For the elite, it's the exact opposite. It's going to encourage people to get better and to train. So it's just great to have that in a competitive context, like a, a truly like competitive, like you know, um, athletic environment, but the, the NDL wasn't that yet. And so I feel like he looked at a team that was dominant and winning every single year as threatening because it would potentially discourage people to show up and then therefore it would, you know, uh, reduce the amount of money he would make. So I can, I can kind of, that, that's, that would have been what I, my piece was, uh, Serge, even though, it does suck for us that that did take it seriously and did put the time in and and start to train and do practices, even though those are god awful compared to today's standards. Is that yeah? It, it upsets yeah. the business model, especially if you are already, to his credit, promoting this as the national amateur dodgeball, you know, uh, event. Um, so, mm. whether or not you know Joseph Quella is the reason why you guys are asked to leave, I, I think really think it's like you said, it, it disrupted his business model. Mark, I'm sure you've already kind of heard similar things. You kind of already talked about it with, you know, with Chris leaving to go play with Rise, because um, people are now like, oh, we. It wasn't I... Chris. It was Tyler Greer. Oh. Oh, you're. Oh, wow, you're right. <laughs> well, it happened twice. <laughs> but same thing. Like, I, I even get this, you know, here locally. Like, people want to go to Elite, but if they're not going to win, uh, for some reason they think they can get that far. First of all, they they're not that interested. They're not that sold. It's it's almost like a hard sell to just be okay with, Hey, show, do your best. And then maybe you get middle of the pack. Maybe you'll get higher next time. But some people already write themselves off because they're not going to win due to crisis now, or, or maybe heat, or at least at the time doom since they were running it for so, for so long. But, um, I'm glad you kind of spoke to that surge because it, it's, it's kind of good hearing that from you. Cause I guess you can kind of understand the mindset behind it. But when you already are making all these really unpopular moves, you're ignoring your 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 repeat customers, the guys that are wanting to help, are not being um, they're not their help or their willingness to help is not being received well. They're going off and doing their own things. They're getting yelled at for doing that. It's coming down hard on them. It's no wonder that it was only just a matter of time before Elite came in and, and took over. So I feel like um, Ed 
Ed created Elite. Uh, I don't know if that resides well with you, Mark, but if, if you didn't do it, I think it was only a matter of time before someone at least was successful. I know a lot of people tried. I'm just going to say, like, you know, I, I think Ed actually definitely had a, a phase in, in the creation of Elite. I wouldn't say he created Elite because it wasn't just Ed's, um, uh, you know, failure to listen to the player because remember i started this because i wanted more than just the one tournament like i started this just wanting to have like three or four small tournaments a year in the west coast so that like you know syndicate could play rise could play team evil could play you know renegades and whatnot um and then it grew into something that competed against ed uh I wanted just, I wanted more. It wasn't in, actually intended to compete against the NDL. It was intended, uh, in fact, to complement it. You know, in 2011, I was in the room in the, the you know, the, the registration day where you have the pro meeting before you go lift sandbags. Uh, and he's talking about all the great things to come. And I stood up and I said, I would love to be the West Coast person and I can handle and help grow. And I, you know, this is something that like I excel at, like I can do this. And I was just kind of waved away. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And you know, I went and did it. <laughs> I was so close to making it through. Yeah, that. Almost <laughs> man. But I appreciate you for at least doing better than search. <laughs> um, so it like, it wasn't, he was, he was tangentially like involved in creating it in that like i saw that there could be a better system it could be more transparent the money could go to the players we could do all these things you know that's where i would say his involvement was but like i will say this there would be no elite without ed there would be no really anything else there would be no wbdf either there would be no other large-scale organization is because we all wanted more and the fact was that we weren't being listened to because if you remember who started the wbdf was bill fair and dan vladescu and bill fair was fed up with seeing the international side so bill and i started at the same time he started with the wbdf trying to angle for the international and world market and I wanted the U.S. market, and you know, it was, it was both coming out coming out of the failures of of being able to listen, adapt, and change to what was going on. Yeah, no, I was definitely not saying that. Uh... But that's how Glenn came to go come work with Elite. Was Glenn had you know a, a bunch of great ideas of like how to how to move forward. And, you know, he actually declined my offer to join Elite and, and run it. Uh, and he said, I, I actually just want to take my ideas to Ed. He went, took his ideas to Ed, and he was brushed off. Yep. And that's when he came to join the organization of Elite. And, you know, that's when it started to expand. And we went to the north and then the east and then the south and then created – the series and then created 
you know, the, the nationals and everything. And it's kind of snowballed since then. It was just because you needed to adapt. You needed to evolve. And every year elite has evolved because it, it has to, because things change, players change, gameplay changes. Um, and then the market changes. So, so I think, um, I think for the most part, we, we kind of covered at least the stuff that I really wanted to um, in terms of, I guess, some of the grievances with the NDL. Um, looking at maybe an hour and a half mark for this episode. So just in the interest of, of keeping this somewhat, um, I, I want to say at least under two hours, kind of wanted to, to speed along real quick. And um, I happened to talk to Dom before uh, I started recording this, and he had asked me to ask you guys, and I know you're pressed for time, search. So we'll start with you real quick. Um, I guess to, to kind of summarize everything, um, you know, you've been involved with the scene since 2005, since the beginning, essentially, but what was the breaking point for you? When did you realize that you were just no longer wanting to be a part of the NDL? Um, well, Mark, I know this uh, goes against what you said a little bit earlier in saying that, oh. that you think it was the uh, UDC scheduling at the same time as the NDL, or better yet, the NDL scheduling at the same time as the UDC, as you know, the the, the critical sort of turning point in, in their downfall. But for me, it was when there was an alternative, a, a, a viable alternative. And I'm talking about from like a player standpoint. The UDC didn't provide that for me because if you really think about the UDC, there's not a ton of play, there's not really a lot of playing time. It's all timed. It's very it's very minimal. And, and it's not the same kind of product that was offered uh, by the NDL. The elite, on the other hand, or the, I can't say the elite without the, sorry, Mark. The elite, <laughs> on the other, <laughs> the elite, on the other hand, offered that. It was an organization that offered a tournament premised on the idea of let's just show up and play dodgeball a lot of it a lot of dodgeball not two minutes of dodgeball not three minutes of dodgeball no no tvs no film you know it's organic it's it's something it's something that we want to do it's it's just raw dodgeball yeah there's going to be structure yes it's going to be organized yes we're going to listen to the players and what that means is we're going to play a lot of dodgeball and it's going to be the highest competition that that we can possibly offer which was what the ndl initially offered but then you know as we touched on in this podcast it it no longer was the case as soon as you know they started to do you know all the things we talked about the the elite offered that it was it was a viable alternative alternative and and it ended up you know just going far beyond what the ndl offered from a player standpoint, it, it was it was amazing. It was like, okay, we're gonna show up. We're gonna play three days of dodgeball. Are you kidding me? Two days of dodgeball all day long, and it's not gonna be. It's, you know, we're not gonna have all this BS that the NDL had. Wonderful. I'm in. I'm in. I'm, I'm 100% in. So for me, that was the the critical turning point. As soon as we heard that the ND, that the elite had you know plans to do you know the series and then the national championships, we talked as a team. Rise that you know we're no longer going to you know participate in the NDL and we're going to jump ship and we're going to go to the elite and and everything was you know smooth sailing from there so that was that was our story my nice. breaking point as i i touched on earlier my breaking point was 
was that that 2011 uh pro meeting when it was kind of you know i've always been taught if you want something you raise your hand you stand up and you yeah you, you ask for it and so when uh you know i i was telling them what i could what i could bring to the table and i was just kind of brushed off and it was just like yeah okay whatever and it wasn't the first time it was the first time but multiple times i got brushed off and and you know what like I know what I, I could give and I know what I could do. And I know I could put the sport in front of me, which is basically what I've done for nine years. Um, that was my breaking point was like, okay, I want something better. I want something more. This is not enough. That was my breaking point. So essentially your philosophy is, you know, be the change you want to see. Not to, not to quote Gandhi, but, uh, don't even equate me to that. Just, <laughs> Definitely not doing I, that. Just, uh, just no. saying you're, you want to be, as we've said many times, you want to be the solution, not the problem. There we go. Probably well, well like I, I'll, I'll, I will say this, like, you know, in dodgeball, there's, there's about the number on your hand, the amount of people who will say, why isn't this happening and do something about it. Yep. And right now that's, that's Jake, that's me. That's that's Dwayne in Canada, and a few at most in America. That when there's not something, they'll do something. Everybody else is just talk. And you know, it, it sounds harsh, but you know, it it, it always comes down to doing it rather than talking about it and when i talked about the national series we made the national series happen when we talked about doing the national championship we did it and i'm sure you remember serge the very first time i reached out for you and it was like hey i want to host a tournament here in la all we're going to do is cover the cost of the gym and the rest of the money is going to go into the prize pocket and and i'm sure you were skeptical like this guy is going to host a tournament you showed up and it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything you said is true, except I wasn't skeptical, Mark. I believed in you. Aw, true love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, maybe we should probably end on that note. Um, well, I thought we had one more question. It was, um, what takeaways have I utilized from the NDL for Elite? Correct. But before we, uh, cause I'm, I'm down to go down with that with you, but, uh, okay. Serge, I think you got to go. So if you got to drop off, man, thank you so much for, for hopping on and participating. Yeah. Uh, great talking with you guys. Hopefully I'll see you around soon. For sure, man. Bye. So the biggest takeaway that I utilize from the NDL for elite, and it's quite honestly, the simplest one was it was all about your home teams, your individual teams it was team evil not arizona resistance it was syndicate not la chaos it was the team that you're gonna fight for the team that you're gonna be passionate about is the team that you create and build something around that rather than hey everybody come for this big amateur tournament and then you know, we'll handpick people we feel should be pros. Uh, and like I said, like the pro day, like Serge always said it was kind of, it felt like a joke to him, but 
the pro day was the most organized day of all. Like it was always late to start, but once it started, like there was a clear round Robin, there was a clear tournament bracket. There was, you know, four reps on hand. They were filming it. Like that was where they put all their effort into. And the problem is, is that there was no loyalty to your pro team because there were people you played with one day a year. Whereas like syndicate, or rise at the time would kick the pants off of uh, any one of the pro teams. Oh yeah, easily. It was it was no it was no contest. So I, I thought like, why are you elevating the the like inferior product? And you know, it, it, the hardest part was you know like having Syndicate get broken to two, like that's it was it was it was hard to swallow, and that's that's. Like there's still scars in the LA community in terms of like having that get broke up. Like, sure, you know, two thirds of it went and formed Doom, but like it came at the destruction of, you know, the early version of Gridlock, and it came at the destruction of Syndicate, and it came at the destruction of like uh, there was New Era and Dreamweavers or whatever team it was, but. You know, that was the biggest takeaway was like, you got to focus on the best product you have at hand. You know, the most exciting matches was the open and NDL uh, because they were always, you know, by the time you got to the end of that bracket, it was exciting. And then you got to pro and it was just kind of like, yeah, there's a bunch of good players, but you know, that guy on the right side goes up and gets hit in the back because the guy on the left doesn't even know what's going on. He doesn't know he needs to hold that corner. Yeah, there's no chemistry and no reason to really. There's no history behind that team. It's like you said. I mean, it's, I can't even tell you how many states or teams had people from different states that you saw once, as you said earlier. There, there's oh, yeah. no. Uh, I was on. I was on Chicago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was on Chicago, and then like, you know, some of the LA players were on the San Diego team, and I just remember like. I remember the the Vegas team had people from Dallas. You know, you had a, a random hodgepodge that were like on the Virginia team. Like the only things that were and even Ed Prentice was on a different team each year. Yeah, I think he uh cuz uh, he was on Virginia Rampage at one point and then he played with New York Epic and then like I'm pretty sure he was on Vegas. I think it was Vegas 2010. He was New York I believe 2012 and then Texas shade at some point. I remember seeing him in that shirt. Yeah. Texas shade, like Sebastian Seabass was on Texas shade. Like, <laughs> why is Seabass from LA on Texas shade? You had me, Mason and uh, Justin on Texas shade our first year in 2005 yeah. Yeah, or six. On Texas shade and not Arizona I, I, I didn't understand. So that that's honestly the biggest takeaway that I took away from it. Um, other than that, like it was just, when we started out, it was crowdsourcing what the players want most. Yeah. And they wanted playing time. And then we had done the double elimination bracket. And then, you know, they wanted, uh, you know, the, the NDL rules weren't bad. Like, there were things I disagree with. But, you know, every rule set has things people disagree with. Um, but they were the hardest rules because good Lord, that was a thick book that even the pros didn't understand the rules. Um, 
yeah it's, it's pretty much it yeah i think uh if i were to answer that question on your behalf it was what, what takeaways have you utilized from the nl2 elite is like as you said and the second point was you just you listen to the players and you evolve um I mean, there's been evolution and changes every single year to get better and better and better without losing focus of the most precious aspect of Elite, and that's the player and the teams that have, now they have their own identities and brands, um, as it should be, because you, you don't want to yeah, you don't want to start from open gym and your local leagues, g- gather around your, your best friends, develop this amazing synergy and, and teamwork, and have to get broken up because your only compensation for doing so is free entry into this tournament that's losing focus on whatever it started out to be, whether it was to promote the brand of dodgeball, to appeal to sponsors, to get as many people to play as possible, to develop a competitive sense of the game. I mean, I feel like uh, the NDL just tried to do everything and did not listen to the people that it was all built around. So, Well, arguably the two most well-known team names that have been around the longest and, and, and consecutive are Team Awesome from the east and rise from the west yep and if if everybody was was forced to be on a pro team under a different name and that changed every year who was on it like you get rid of that but at least if there's consistency like everybody knows doom because doom was around for a long time and won on on you know multiple stages and and they were able to like turn that into marketing And it also made teams aspire to be better. I mean, like, okay, well, Doom is probably going to win, but we'll we'll get better as a team. We'll practice. We'll we'll do the things that on our end. We'll we'll take ownership of how we improve. Not look to you and be like, Mark, break up this team. Ask Doom not to play anymore. Like that's just not the way to go. Oh, I I, I always thoroughly enjoy the stack teams in Elite because they never work out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the. The, the the title chasing people are always the teams that just never win. I mean, oh, that's a rabbit hole I'm going to avoid. But um, so, I, yeah, I, I would say that in, in going back, like, you know, that's kind of the thing that I've always had to try to focus on the most was evolution and, and how to keep adapting. And, and honestly, you know, people will see that, that next evolution and, and next steps, you know, before next season and, and constantly trying to listen and, and put out a better product. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I hope that this serves as a, as a good, as I said, like if people have questions about the NDL, um, and, and I understand it's it's you, me, and Serge talking about our perspective and, and our, our history with the NDL and why we feel like we have at least a, a good enough um, hold on it to, to talk about the some of the positive and, and the negative as well. I hope that this kind of shows or serves as a good reference for it. I am sure you can ask anybody that's been around um, for almost as long as we have that they've got their gripes as well. But at least for the most part, I think I feel like what we covered is, is pretty much like the general consensus and probably a good 50 to 80 of the comments you'll see anytime somebody uh somebody brings up the ndl or the past but um i think unless you've got any final takeaways man i think uh, i think we're good there well i'd say my final takeaway was the you know the ndl was necessary like it was it was a good microcosm and a stepping stone for 
uh, you know, what would be, you know, like that first generation of, of, of dodgeball and, and dodgeballers, like it, it was absolutely necessary. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I've said candidly, like if there was a dodgeball hall of fame, Ed Prentice's first ballot unanimous hall of fame, like I, you can't argue against it, nor would I want to like, yeah, he's an integral part of, of that, you know, whatever's going on with the WDA, I certainly don't agree with it. And I don't agree with the kind of smoke and mirrors that's going on with, with the same rehash that we've seen already time and again. Crap. But, um, no, like, don't get me wrong. Like I don't hate Ed. I just, don't have time <laughs> <laughs> yeah people have suggested I, I bring him on the podcast and i you know i don't know if you'd ever be be game for that that would be interesting you know what i would i would love to do if you could arrange it if there ever was i would do it i would do an episode with ed man stakes are higher now we'll see we'll see how this but is how this is received no, he, hasn't, he hasn't he hasn't talked to me since I think the last when it was, the the last conversation we had was the no they've got to choose one way or another. So you guys left on really good terms then. <laughs> well, he he was offering when I'm ready to quit doing my thing with Elite that he would hire me for the India. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't take him up on that. Um, my last interaction with him was 2013. Just you know, I hate to it's it's weird to, to admit this, but like. I never really had any beef with him from a player's perspective other than just not seeing the stuff that I wanted to see as, as organizer, leader of Tucson dodgeball as captain of team evil. It was always just, Hey, this is all we got. So we're going to, we're going to show up to Vegas. We're going to play. We're going to go back home and I'm just going to make the league better as much as I could. But the same thing over and over again, always losing money on the steel, um, losing teams. People are always taking shots at me. People are always, you know, criticizing what I do, but they're not helping me out. Like just the same thing over and over again. Yet I look to you and Vince and Glenn, people that actually have done something very substantial and continue to listen to the players. It's just like, you have no excuses, man. Like you've had so many opportunities to, to take this already good thing and make it better and work with others. But your attitude or your business model or whatever it is that has prevented you from working with others has been your downfall. So it's, it's hard to sympathize with where he's at now in terms of how this has fallen apart. But at the same time, as you said, it's, I, I do respect what he's done for the sport. And when Serge interviewed me last year, um, for, for, for me, uh, he asked, you know, who would I put on the Mount Dodgemore of, or, or Mount Rushmore of dodgeball? And it would, it'd be Ed as well. So yeah. I would like to think cool. we're on good terms, but who knows? Um, oh, I'm, I'm years. he probably hates my guts. I think I think you have good cause to, um, just because it, you're you're a competitor that, in my eyes, in the eyes of many, has has won by by a lot, and we're just going to keep moving forward because, as you said, we don't really have time, and you know, when people, when it's brought up, us older guys just kind of roll our eyes like, oh, God dang it, not this again, but uh, we'll see what the future holds. So, yeah, that's always been the biggest thing to me is like I, I started to realize because I've got, you know, I feel like first generation is is, you know, that 2004 to 2010. Um, I think the second generation is like 2009 to 
2014 and then we had this third generation coming in and like you know 2015 onwards yeah um as i as as i'm getting like i think i even had this conversation with a, a couple of the kids like xander simos who's you know like we've literally seen kid <laughs> we've seen this kid grow up in the course of elite from you know this little 10 year old um and they're like, yeah, I don't get what the beef is with the NDL. And it was like, you just don't understand what we, what we fought for and, and what we, what we had to take to that next level and everything that it took to, to take us from, you know, that one tournament with garbage cans and two by fours to, you know, you know, like I, I take a personal investment because like, I feel like people have completely forgot that like, i don't get paid for elite and so like for you know nine years this has been just out of pure passion so all the the mud slinging all the you know the crap i have to take even even the death threats like it's all been because of passion um and and they just so when someone goes, I don't get what the what the big deal was, like to me it it's still personal. Yeah. Personal is uh that's that's a good way to put it. Um my my personal is definitely not to the extent of yours, but I there's certain areas I can I can sympathize with and it's like I said, when I when I see this resurface in the form of WDA or US dodgeball or anything like that, it's, it's, it's like, man, please don't let the, please don't let the past repeat itself. Like we, we've come so far, we don't need to go backwards. And I really hope that the youth as the kids, as you put it, um, start listening to this and, and understand that it's not, it's not you or, or, or Jake or anybody or, or any, any of the influencers, as you put it earlier, um, being petty or not wanting to compete. It's, we fought this enemy for years and we're really tired of it. So, um, but I think, uh, I think that's all I got, man. So, um, thanks for being willing to hop on and, and talk about, it. I know we, we talked about this about a month ago. Glad you and you and Serge and myself can pick a time. I think the timing right now is really interesting. Um, cause I definitely want to get this out of the way before we move on to, uh, WDBF. But, um, yeah, I think we'll go ahead and end the interview there. Alrighty, I really don't know what to say without sounding very long-winded. I think what I'll do is spare you guys the additional minute or two that would probably accompany my final thoughts for whatever they're worth and put that into some kind of blog form. Um, I hope at this point uh, I'll release the retirement article that I started uh, quite a few months ago. I'm so sorry. And also uh, just convey my attitude. Uh, sometimes I'm better at it in writing than I am in, in voice. But um, thank you so much, uh, Serge and, and Mark, for hopping on. Give me a couple hours of your time this evening to, to vent. And also um, do so in what I hope has been a productive and rational way. Because um, it's crazy to think that we've been around for so long that it is just natural to understand the issues that we have with the National Dodgeball League and its main um, main players, um, maybe not players, but leadership rather. Um, it, it's it's weird to think that people are are so involved in 
the dodgeball stage as we know it to have no idea what went into creating it, uh, the good and the bad. And so I really hope that we were able to portray the NDL in as positive of a light as possible, but also vocalize our issues with it in as constructive and um, fact-based as possible. And I'd be more than happy to back any of the things that I've said up. I'm sure Mark and Serge would be as well. And I also hope that this kind of serves as a reference point in the event that um, people want to know what what's what happened, uh, what happened, what's going on, and, and why are things the way they are with certain individuals. But um, like I said, I'll, I'll probably uh, take to writing for the rest because I, I really do not want to uh, to take any more of this time. This is already going to be a two hour two hour episode, and uh, silly me, I thought this would be done in an hour. So anyway, if you're still listening, thank you so much for doing so. As always, please send all questions, feedback, concerns to me post it on the page or, you know, let me know via text or some, I don't know, just let me know. Um, I look forward to, uh, going back to interviews starting next, next week. And, um, yeah, I am rambling. So <laughs> have a great uh, rest of your evening, a great rest of your weekend, and, uh, we'll see you next time.